Welcome to the True Path Podcast. Today we are in session three of our study of 1 Peter. We'll be discussing chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. So we ended last week in verse 16 with God's call to holy living. God tells us to be holy just as he is holy. We are to follow his footsteps because he is our God. And according to verse 17, he is also our father and whom we can call upon for help. And that's what I believe he's doing in verses 17 through 21 of our passage today. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is establishing who we are as Christians, our standing in Christ, that God is our impartial father and that we have been redeemed by Jesus. And in verses 22 through 25, Peter describes how our lives should be impacted in light of these truths. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 25 in the CSB. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart love one another constantly, because you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So notice in verse 17 that Peter refers to God as Father. Now, up until now, he's only referred to him as God. But he is not only our God, he is also our loving Heavenly Father, who we can call upon at any time. Anyone can call upon his name, because he is impartial. Acts 10, 34 and 35 says, God does not show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God is accessible to anyone, regardless of appearance, social status, or past experiences. God judges impartially according to each one's work, verse 17 tells us. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. As the born-again children of God, we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts, and he prompts us to want to please the Father. The Holy Spirit gives us the desire to want to work for God to obey him, and to do good. Our sins have been judged on the cross, so according to Hebrews 10, 10 through 18, they can no longer be held against us. But when Christ returns, we will still have to give an account of our works, and we will receive the appropriate reward, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 10. So our works are not as much a requirement as they are evidence of a changed life because of our salvation. In Matthew 7:16, Jesus tells us, you will know them by their fruit. So knowing that God judges impartially should motivate us to live our lives in reverent fear of him. 
which means to have worshiping respect and a sense of awe of God. Knowing that God is impartial and doesn't play favorites is a comfort for us. It means that we don't have to compete for his affections. He doesn't compare our works to someone else's to determine our worthiness. His judgments are based on his standard of holiness, not human standards. And that's a relief because human standards are constantly changing. I mean, what what once stood for goodness and decency no longer does. But God's standard does not change. And it is clear. Verse 16 tells us, be holy as I am holy. And there's freedom in that, I believe, because it's not about how many people did I witness to today or how much money did I put in the offering plate today. But instead, how faithful was I in following the footsteps of Jesus today? Did I model Christ today? How faithfully did I perform the task that God gave me to do? I think we can sometimes be lured into living by human standards of faithfulness. As long as I'm better than the other guy, then I'm doing okay. But that's not God's standard. Because God isn't looking at the other person when he's looking at you. He's looking at himself and saying, how much do you look like me? So we are to conduct ourselves in reverence for God during our time living as strangers, verse 17 tells us. Now, Peter also refers to Christians as strangers in chapter 2, verse 11. And as we mentioned back in session 1, we're strangers because we are no longer of the world. We belong to God. We are different than the world because we're citizens of heaven, according to Philippians 3.20. So if we're strangers here and should conduct ourselves in reverent fear for God, well, how do we do that? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 17, and Peter himself tells us in chapter 3, verse 9, instead of repaying evil with evil, repay evil with good. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one. If someone takes your shirt, give them your coat too. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, the only reason that we're able to do all that is because of what 18, verse 18 and 19 tells us. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished spotless lamb. We can accomplish a seemingly impossible task of living like strangers because of who we are. We've been redeemed. Now, this word redemption held special significance for Peter's audience. During the time of the Roman Empire, there were millions of people who were slaves. And at that time, a slave, if they could save enough money, they could buy back their freedom or redeem themselves. Or someone could pay the price to their master and set them free. So this idea of redemption was a very familiar and precious thing to them. Verse 19 says that we have been redeemed or bought back, rescued from an empty way of life. So in the same way, Jesus has redeemed us by paying the penalty that our sins deserve. And the price for our freedom from the power of sin and death could not be paid with perishable things like silver or gold. The price was far greater than that, greater than anything that we could ever give. It took, as verse 19 tells us, the precious blood of Christ, that of an unblemished, spotless lamb. 
Now, this reference to lamb, as you know, harkens back to the Old Testament. References to lamb in the Old Testament most often relate to sacrifice. In Exodus 12, when the Israelites were in Egypt, they were spared from God's judgment and wrath by taking the blood of a lamb without defect and putting it over their door frames. Also, in Exodus 29:38 and Numbers 28, lambs were to be presented as a sacrifice to God. John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1, 29. And in Revelation 5, it is Jesus who is the slaughtered lamb and the only one able to take the scroll from God and open it. So it is only Jesus. He is the only one who was the perfect sacrifice and who can offer freedom from the bondage of sin. Without him, human beings are destined to live lives that are empty and lead nowhere. Now, this may not be news to you. I mean, I think it's an important reminder, though, even for seasoned Christians, because it's easy to buy into the lie that people can live happy, fulfilled lives without Jesus. It's especially easy to believe the lie when it looks like many unbelievers around us are prospering while we're struggling. But remember what Psalm 73 says? For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common burdens. They aren't plagued by human ills. They are free of care. They go on amassing wealth. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Those who are far from you will perish. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, no matter what is going on around us, we can trust that God will strengthen us. He will guide us and he will one day bring us into his glory forever. That is what our future holds. Now in verse 20, it says he, meaning Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Now the NIV says he was chosen before the foundation of the world, and the King James says that he was foreordained. So God didn't just know that Jesus would be the savior of the world. He planned it that way. And he planned it before the world was even created. It wasn't like God created Adam and Eve and then after they sinned, God said, Oh boy, I guess I need to come up with a plan to save them now. No, God already had the plan for salvation in place before he even created humans. Because he knew that we were going to need it. And what I find most fascinating is that God knew that we would reject him. He knew that we would rebel against him. He knew the price that he would have to pay to win us back, and yet he still chose to create us, knowing it would cost him his own son. And Jesus willingly came and sacrificed himself for you and me. There's no greater love than that. I mean, it's one thing to love those who love you back, but to love those who hate you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So in verse 20, Jesus, it says that Jesus has been revealed in these last times for us. 
Now, the phrase last times or end times is used in the New Testament to refer to the time after Christ's resurrection and ascension. The time in which you and I live are the last times because the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Messiah has already taken place. And so all that is left is Jesus' return when our world will pass away and Jesus will usher in a new world. So verse 21 says, Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So it is through Jesus that we believe in God. John 14, 6 says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So the only way to God is through Jesus. There are many worldly philosophies out there that believe that there are various ways to get to or believe in God. But any philosophy or religion that denies Jesus, it's just false. It's invalid. I mean, Peter's clear. One can only truly believe in God if they also believe in Jesus. You cannot have one without the other. So it also says that our faith and hope are in God. But are they really? I mean, is our faith and hope really in God or something else? Like our job, our finances, maybe a relationship. We need to remember that there is only one who can bear the weight of all of our faith and all of our hope, and that's God. You've heard the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket, meaning don't make everything dependent on one thing, because if it fails, you're left disappointed with nothing. But you can do it if it's the right basket. Placing all your faith and hope in God, that will never leave you with nothing. And in verses 22 and 23, it goes on to say, Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So it seems Peter's saying, okay, we've talked about how and why to get our inner self straight by practicing holiness and placing our faith and hope in God. But now we need to focus on our outer selves, our relationships. Because when we begin to focus our faith and hope in God and His Son Jesus, and we begin to pattern our lives after Him, well, it's going to naturally affect our relationships. It says we have purified ourselves by obeying the truth. Now remember, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So we are purified by obeying the words of Jesus. One commentator says, As trials refine faith, obedience to God's word refines character. One who has purified themselves by living according to God's word has discovered the joy of obedience. I love that. Joy in obedience. Nowhere else can you find joy in obedience except with God. I mean, the very word obey implies a chore, unpleasant being forced to do something against your will, but not with God. Because obeying Him, in obeying Him, we are blessed. We are blessed with new perspectives. We are blessed with a new outlook on life. The things that once caused fear and stress no longer do. And these new characteristics that we gain through obedience enables us to show brotherly love for others. But Peter's encouraging fellow believers to not stop there, 
but from a pure heart love one another constantly. Other translations say deeply or fervently. Now, it's important to note here that Peter uses two different Greek words for love in verse 22. When he says you show brotherly love, he's using the Greek word phileo or Philadelphia, which means, just as it says in the passage, brotherly love or brotherly kindness. But the second time he uses the word love, love one another constantly from a pure heart, he uses the Greek word agapao or agape, which is more than brotherly love. It means to love dearly to show love, to demonstrate love. Now, this is much more than brotherly affection. This is the kind of love that comes from a changed heart. It's actively demonstrating our love for others. It means loving our brothers and sisters in Christ sincerely, not just with empty platitudes, not just loving those who are easy to get along with or who love you back. We are even to love those with whom we disagree. And the word constantly means that we don't get to choose to love others only when it's convenient or beneficial to us or feels right. I mean, God is calling us to do the impossible. Love each other from a pure heart constantly. How do we do that? Well, fortunately, Peter tells us in verse 23, because we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. We can do this because we're not doing it by our own strength, but His. You see, God never tells us to do something without giving us what we need to do it. And not only have we been born again through God's Word, but Peter continues by saying in verses 24 and 25, For all flesh is grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. He's quoting from Isaiah 47 and 8 here. So it is through the word that we've been born again. And even after all flesh passes away, the word never will. And this word is the gospel. So what does John 1, 1 through 5 say is the embodiment of the word? Jesus. Jesus is the word. He is the one who changes us and transforms us. He is the one who brings life and light into our dark places. He is the one who will never pass away. He is the one in whom we can trust. So our challenge is to focus on the word this week, to read through John 1, 1 through 5, and remind ourselves of who Jesus, the word, really is and everything that he has done for us. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.